0: Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series and joining me this week to share the stories behind the books which influenced him the most on his life journey is Dr Richard Gold. Dr Gold is a licensed acupuncturist and a Chinese medicine teacher who holds a doctorate in psychology and is one of the founders of the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. He spent the last four decades pursuing mental mindfulness and meditative awareness and in more recent years studying neuroscience and the evolving understanding of the effects of sound and meditation on the brain. He's written several books and the best known one is Thai Massage, a traditional medical technique. Dr. Richard Gold, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Sandy. It's always lovely to see you.
0: You too, Richard. Um, Let's start off by telling us what books mean to you and what this process was like for you.
1: Well, the process is the critical thing for me. Um, I did my writing in the first month of quarantine. Uh, Who knew where it was going to take us? But we're over a year later, later now. And it really became a uh, looking back of my path of, you know, I'm, I am where I am now. And as a meditator, you know, we want to stay in the moment, but clearly there was a trail um, and this was allowed me to like put the cookie crumbs out and look, look, look back and uh, really see how influential uh, certain readings were for me and my pursuits and my life choices. Um, it was revealing, a, a little shocking, uh, Sometimes painful because it's not always been a, a smooth a smooth road, but ultimately uh, filled with gratitude for for where I am now. Um, as I wrote in my introduction uh, for you for this, uh, books have always played a critical part of my life. I was from a family of readers. Um, I always I even enjoyed the assignments in in junior high of reading. Silas Marner and uh, I love Dickens and and. Uh, I used to just love being in libraries. My grandmother was a library rat. I mean, she would read a book a day, it seemed like, and we would often pick up books for her and bring them to her. Um, I even enjoyed going to the card catalog. I mean, that seems like an anachronism, certainly now the Dewey Decimal System and going through the the card files and then traipsing through the library and hoping uh, you'll find what what you set out to do. So books have been extremely important to me. I still read all the time. Uh, And I just, I can't imagine life without books.
0: How hard was it to pick 10 books?
1: Um, Quite, I think I I picked primarily at this this crucial time in my life when uh, things fell apart and then things started to come back together. Um, There certainly, I had a list and I was wondering, you know, which would be most impactful, which would tell the best story. Um, for myself uh, in terms of interest, introspection at this point in my life. Um, but there's so many that I that could have mentioned, I did resist going into your website and looking what other uh, authors had uh, offered, uh, both to, to not get too many ideas and certainly not to repeat what repeat people have already heard. Um, but I, I really pick things in particular and I, I think as you noted in your little uh, written introduction, some of my things are a little odd, I think, from a spiritual uh, point of view. Um, But as our listeners will hear, I've I've been a very practical person in many ways, and so some of my books are quite quite practical to, to my path and my work and my journey.
0: Well, it's interesting because obviously after about six months of doing these weekly interviews and about 60 plus contributions to the archive, the same books come up again and again, or at least a a small number of the same books come up again and again. So I'm always tickled when I see something that is way out in left field. And uh, it draws my attention, as we're going to find out a bit later with one of your books. Um, So let's start with the first one, which was The Way of Zen by Alan Watts. And that particular book, which was published in 1957 has been mentioned as one of the most precious gifts of Asia to the world.
1: Yes, um, I, a little context, which is, um, I was about a middle America as you wanna be, you know, born in 1950, eating white bread, uh, <laughs> drinking milk three times a day. You know, um, I was from a, uh, a very educated, intellectual, academic, fa- liberal family, um, but we were pretty on the straight and narrow uh, in many ways and um, I actually from the time I was four I wanted to be a doctor so I went off to college as a pre-med chemistry major and um, and I was at a college called Oberlin College which is a small liberal arts college in Ohio but people who know about Oberlin know that it's quite quite reputable and is always had a kind of clastic and out there sort of people and um, and just one day um, a friend not even a good friend uh, handed me the book, The Way of Zen, and said, I really think you should read this. I really want you to read this. And it was totally outside of the chemistry and biology and genetics and all those things I was studying. And I read this book, and I felt like a, like a puppy whose eyes started to open. I'd never been exposed to East Asian uh, religious thought, uh, meditative consciousness. None of those ideas had ever uh, crossed my path. Uh, in addition, uh, Watts is just a brilliant writer, Um, And um, as I mentioned in my piece here, I actually had the chance to meet him. He was brought to Oberlin my senior year and um, his voice is just beautiful and eloquent, and he led some meditations It was an early spring day in northern Ohio, which is a bit of a miraculous moment, and uh, it really cemented to me the impact of that because it really, it, it, he, t- he touched me personally deeply in this book, really set me um, off in a direction I and did not anticipate at all. Um, now, again, I was in college uh, from 68 to 72 during the Vietnam War and the Cultural Revolution, the beginning of the women's uh, movement, so many things that were in t- tumult. And um, and this really set me up to be uh, to be caught up on that wave and not not cling to what was familiar and what I knew and what I depended on for my foundation. Um, it definitely created uh, uh, co- not conflict so much, but challenges um, with everything that had come before, including parental relationships and things that were you know what what I had always done. Um, and so I stopped being a pre within so. I worked in the hospitals for two years uh, during those first two years of college. By my third year of college, start, um, I became a religious studies major and I totally dropped out of pre-med. Uh, what I saw in hospitals working as an orderly and direct patient care and like a nurse's assistant in many ways um, really spoiled me on the role model of medical doctors for myself. And um, and those weren't the questions I was asking myself that I wanted to have answered at that time. And I really felt that a, a more of a spiritual than really a religious um, path was where where I was heading at that time. And there were enough cultural influences, I think, that I didn't feel too lonely. I saved the loneliness for a few years a few books later on this on our discussion.
0: So did you actually get to speak to him?
1: Oh, I spent time with Alan Watts and um, I was I was asked by the department to be his host. And at that time, the airport from Oberlin was about an hour drive into Cleveland. And so I went there and we got there and his flight was delayed. And so I didn't drive. There was a driver. So we sat in the back together and he said, well, I have I have some extra time. You want to join me in the bar? Now, if people who know about Alan Watts, that was a place you would often find him would have, would have been in the bar. And Oberlin was a dry town. You couldn't buy a beer there. Uh, there wasn't much drinking in, in my circles on campus at that time. And so after one screwdriver, my mouth was, my tongue was loose, and we were just two old friends talking. And he put, he sort of, as I recall, he sort of interviewed me about what it's like to be a college student during the Vietnam War, during the cultural changes that were mm. happening. So it was an absolute delight. Um, and I, I treasure that moment. And uh, subsequently, a number of years later, teaching at Esalen Institute, where he taught for a number of years himself. Um, I actually taught in the Watts classroom, and I felt that that connection really, really strongly. It was really wonderful moments.
0: It must have been a, um, quite a, an iconic experience, the man who turned you on, so to speak, yes. and there you are, sitting in a bar with him.
1: Yes, I, had a, I didn't include Gary Snyder, the great Pulitzer Prize winning poet in my list. But I had a similar experience. I met him at Oberlin when he came to speak when I was first there. And then he was a good friend of my dissertation advisor here in San Diego. And I got to spend an an evening in front of a fireplace with Gary Snyder, who's who's deeply into Zen Buddhism himself. Um, Mm -hmm. And thankfully still living. Um, He's quite an elderly gentleman now. And so, absolutely. it, It really was synergy and these synergistic meetings and sort of accidental, coincidental things, as you see, will play... A, yeah. continuing, a continuing role in our discussion
0: yeah well and I think in all of our lives
1: yes it's yeah. just it's just so many things are happening if we would just keep our eyes open and be in the moment yeah. and not just be distracted by everything else
0: so book number two the teachings of don one this crops up a few times a yucky way of knowledge by carlos castaneda
1: yeah so uh, one of the things that really began to continue to open my eyes was studying cultural anthropology. Um, at that point, I had not been out of the US. Um, I had traveled some in America, but not even that that much. And all of a sudden, um, I'm, I'm reading this book and writing a paper about a, uh, a shaman in training, um, which is very psychedelically influenced. Um, and it was mind blowing and it really, uh, broke a lot of the structures of, uh, of enculturation, which, um, you know, once you step out of your enculturation and take your look, you realize how much you've been shaped by, by the culture, by the language, by your situation. And, um, and this book, um, it, it sort of gave me, per- like we can talk about this openly now, especially in California, it gave me permission to explore uh, psychedelics. And um, I didn't do it a lot, a, a little was plenty. Um, no one talked about microdosing in those days. Um, and um, it, it, it really gave me permission to be experimental with my, with my mind and consciousness itself. and self. Um, and again, it wasn't 100% uh, roses and uh, scented path. Um, but it was very mind-opening and heart-opening, and um, I, I felt one thing was like some of the boundaries or distancing we feel from others, um, there was a sense of like a heart melting with people I was, was close by to, and um, it was influential. Now, then I wrote about it. Actually, I wrote about um, the way of Zen and the teachings of Don Juan from my anthropology professor, candidly. And um, I received, we had no email there, of course, I received a personal note from him asking me to join him in his office because he was a little worried about me. <laughs> and um, because, you know, this it was a time of change. And uh, we, we talked and um, he, he, li- he actually liked the paper and, and wasn't so worried about me and uh, was very supportive, not encouraging, but supportive. And coincidentally, again, not, I never met Carlos Castaneda, but he used to live in San Diego, where I live. And uh, people I, you know, people in academics who knew him, um, I've met and said that he was you know, certainly a very interesting man.
0: Where in San Diego?
1: Uh, he was living in Ocean Beach area, which was, that's where Jim Morrison of the Doors was living. And there, there, Ocean Beach was quite the uh, cauldron mm. of uh, yeah. cultural, cultural events.
0: Wow. And I lived for five years in San Diego and I missed all that. Too late. Too late. (laughs) So book number three, Jesus of Nazareth by Günther
1: Borncom. Born yeah A a, a German scholar. So here I am, a religion major. Now again, so I I grew up uh in a in a in a reformed Jewish home uh, born in 1950, which really the Second World War um was still on. It was still permeating uh, Jewish culture, besides all culture, I think, in the West in the, and. Um, and so and and there was a, and it wasn't so much a fear, but there was an us and them, uh, in a sense, with Christianity, my my high I went to public schools. I was always around non-Jewish people. Uh, we went to a fully integrated high school. Um, so it wasn't that I was just a knave in the in the woods per se, um, but I I never explored Christianity. It was always the other, and I was af- afraid of the other, and um, and with the opening that I was experienced from discussed you know previously in our discussion, this course came up on the life and teachings of Christ Jesus Christ. That um, was an academic course. It wasn't evangelical in any way. It was taught by a professor who became my mentor who uh actually I, he was an archaeologist and i went on archaeology with him in subsequent years um and i read this book and um it, it, the context of it and the um and the non preachingness of it was just uh, a, it, it really opened my heart to the teachings of christ and i recognized that this this was a, a, a one of the most elevated beings it's ever been on earth and it really. Took a lot of fear away from me, and I felt much more um, able to be connected to 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 a broader broader culture. Because I mean, <clears throat> the, the 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 Christian culture really is the culture I, I live in. I, I might be swimming in a little smaller bowl at that time in my life, but it made me much more comfortable in my own skin, in my own community, in my own neighbor, in my in my own country. And uh, I felt that was quite 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 a liberating moment. And it was it was a very well well written book. Quite academic. I wouldn't recommend it necessarily, unless you're doing an academic study. German scholars um, are very particular, and um, but I, I found it a good read. And again, my teacher was an inspired, aspired lecturer, and um, and he really helped elevate the the experience for me. It was very very positive.
0: Some of the books on your list, you know, they're. Uh... Quite unusual. I've never come across them before, and I'm curious to know how they fell into your hands, or whether you sought them out. I mean, like book number four, what the Buddha taught. Walpala uh, Rahula.
1: Rahula, yeah. yeah. Um, b- b- both the Jesus of Nazareth and what the Buddha taught were on curriculum. They were ah, on, on okay. reading list for my my courses. Mm. Um, what the Buddha taught is it's almost like uh, a. a uh starred starred points you know it's it's not a lot of literature at all it's like this is what what the the oldest pali texts are teaching us and um right like you know the eightfold path the four divine states of mind you know those specific things were just right there and um and around that same time i um was introduced to to meditation which is at the crux of all this and um it just strongly resonated with me. And it, and it was a reference um, that I could go back to and help clarify what it was. Um, I've always felt from the beginning that I could be culturally uh, Jewish and somewhat spiritually Jewish and definitely embrace Buddhist teaching because it's not for, for or against God or the concept of God. It's much more about uh, the, the being and the connected of the being to self and, and self to community and, or the Sangha um which is called in the buddhist tradition and uh and that that introduction and that comfort in 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 buddhism and then um coincident not coincidentally synergistically um at Oberlin college when i was there had introduced what they called winter term which was the uh month of january between the fall and the spring terms was an independent study month that if you got one faculty member to approve uh, what you wanted to look into um you were they would do it you, they would sign you off and you could do anything um people took a road trip to california people you know they did all all sorts of things um my junior year um the religion department bought a, a a buddhist monk from thailand to lead a month-long what we would call vipassana meditation um and we were in a an underground uh space uh, uh, underneath what was called Asia House, which was the cultural dorm for East Asian studies. It was like being in a cave somewhere in the mountains somewhere. And we sat and did walking meditations and he did Dharma talks. And um, it really uh, was a very powerful experience. And uh, The main thing I got from it was how difficult it is to meditate and how much of a monkey mind I have. And uh, taming that monkey mind has been, a, the, for the next 50 years, has been what, what I've been after. And, um, and this, this book, actually, again, because it, it, the Dharma talks would go off in all these directions, and I would lose, lose awareness, and my mind would start chattering, and I, you know, my legs would hurt, and you know, the whole gamut we experience in medita- long meditation programs, or even min- momentary ones. Um, but it gave me a, a context uh, and, a, and a not exactly a roadmap. But it gave me like a structure of thought that I could return to, and it, it, it's uh, especially the Eightfold Path. I mean, if you if you're living on the Eightfold Path and your neighbors are too, you have community. You know, you're taking care of each other. You're doing to others as you want to do unto you, and you're and I've always I've been very grateful in my life, as we'll talk about in a little bit, that my career is really is congruent with who I am and what I believe and what I hope to achieve in life. And uh, these these basic Buddhist teachings help set a a, a nice foundation for me.
0: Mm. So at what point uh, was it after you graduated that you went off to Kentucky?
1: After I graduated.
0: After you graduated. So the next book, which is uh, Lao, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, translated by Jay Leg. Um, where does that fit into the chronology here?
1: Um, it was another text in my religious studies program. I did a, a, Interesting. a, a course that really uh, stunned me was Chinese literature and translation, where the, the theories of the Dao Te Ching, basically of yin yang theory uh, permeate. I learned it permeated uh, literature, it permeated architecture, it permeated agriculture. Subsequently, I learned it permeated medicine. Um, and so this, this was just, and I, I had to include it because it's, a, it's, a, and it's been translated by hundreds of people. Um, and you could read two translations next to each other and the, the words are so different, but the spirit of it is still about this dynamic polarity of, of opposites and how um, they need each other. They require each other. There's some of this and that, and some of that and this. And, uh, and when that dynamic polarity ceases to exist, that's when life itself uh, ceases to exist. So we, so we need the dynamics of opposites to have the spark of life. And um, this book was just very comforting and it, was, it read, read like poetry for me. I mean, I didn't know um, if I really understood it you know, per se, but the feeling of it felt just so congruent for me that um, I had to include it here in our list.
0: So the next one was Mystics and Zen Masters by Thomas Merton.
1: Again, a, um, an academic book. curriculum? There was... Curriculum. Um, I, I tell you, Oberlin was an unusual place. Mm.
0: Um, Sounds
1: know, it. Thomas Merton, um, You know, many people know about him. Many people don't know about him. He's been dead since 1968. Um, he wrote many, many books. Um, this was one that had been was on the on the reading list, and it really um, struck me. And I and I read it wholeheartedly. Basically, that he was the first. Well, let us go back. Merton was an anti-war protester in the Second World War. He was a bon vivant. He was a man about town. He lived in Europe. He was living in New York City. Uh, one day, he decided um, to become a Trappist silent monk, a Catholic monk. He wasn't raised Catholic. Um, he wrote about this in a book called *The Seven Story Mountain*, an, an autobiographical book. So he goes from this a life of, of of high culture and academics to becoming a silent monk on a on a thousand acres of rural Kentucky, which plays into my story here. Um, what this book is is that he felt because he was the first Westerner that developed a spiritual lessoner that developed a relationship with D.T. Suzuki, who brought zen buddhism to the west in many ways or at least he wrote there might have been others and they had a dialogue and uh, even though he was living as a hermit he also had correspondence um, that that really at the highest level of consciousness uh, all the structures of religious organizations uh, melt away and there's a there's a unifying principle in, in the mist in the mystic realm and uh, and that really appealed to me because I was straddling uh, different r- different religious traditions myself, and um, and instead of feeling fractured by that, there was a sense of wholeness now, and um, and so Merton uh, he's again he wrote many many books, um, one of his last books um, was his his journals of traveling to Asia, so he was. He was well-known in, in higher spiritual circles. He had a correspondence with the Dalai Lama, uh, uh, with Mahatma Gandhi. Um, he finally got permission from his abbot at his monastery to leave the monastery to go to a world religion conference in, uh, in Thailand, in Bangkok. And, um, and on the way, he met personally with the Dalai Lama. He, he gets to Bangkok, and uh, this is a bit of a mystery what happened, although they think that what happened was... He was in a bath, and an electric fan was blowing, I guess there wasn't air conditioning, and somehow he pulled the wire, the electric fan fell into the tub, and he was electrocuted to death. Wow. Um, And that that ended his life. Um, He was still quite a young man. Um, He had so much more to offer, and um, and I mean, I, I just get emotional thinking about that. Another uh, odd, unusual coincidence, uh, totally unplanned, is the first time I stepped off an airplane in Bangkok in Thailand, my trip, was the anniversary of Merton's death. So and
0: you kind I, of followed in his footsteps because you went to Thailand, the, you went I to China. Didn't take <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and so, um, so I'll, I'll get into this. So um, I, I, I was in a seminar on Merton um, in the spring of 71. At that time, a uh, the back to the land movement was gaining uh, interest in, in, in college campuses and in my, my community there, and an ad appeared in the Oberlin College newspaper: uh, "Land beautiful, um, looking for college graduates who want to homestead." It was a very simple ad. I don't remember the exact wording. So, a friend, my best friend, was a year older than me, and he was getting married that spring. Um, he, he really wanted to know what was next, because uh, the, draft, the draft was just ending, um, so he, he was free from the draft. So we piled into a van and drove from Oberlin to what's called Hart County, Kentucky. Um, it's, not, it's near the Mammoth Caves National Park, which is the biggest cave system in the world, if anyone needs a landmark. Gorgeous part of the country. We walked into the uh, apartment of the man who had put the ad, the, the, who was our, who our host. He had a bookshelf of the complete collection of Merton's books on his shelf. And I just, co- just presented my paper to, in my seminar about Merton and, and especially Mystics and Zen Master, sort of a personal experience with that. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then it turns out, Gethsemane Abbey was about 40 minutes from where we were sitting, where Merton had lived his life. So as we drove around this beautiful area, looking at backwoods land um, to possibly purchase, um, Charlie he said, "You guys want to go uh, just see where?" Because uh, I expressed my interest in Merton, he said, "You want to go see Gethsemane?" So we said, "Sure." So we drove, and then we just stood outside the beautiful gates, but could see the country around there just so beautiful and conducive to like connecting to earth and spirit. On the way back at sunset, he said, there's one more farm I want to show, piece of land, it's not a farm, piece of land I want to show you. And at sunset, we walked up a wooded path through a mature hardwood forest and then limestone bluffs with red cedar growing on them, just a beautiful setting. And we, at sunset, we, we entered an open field and I had this feeling of I've arrived and that's the land we bought. Um, 120 acres of hardwood forest for $6,000. Um, no running water, no electricity at the time. Um, but we were going to be homesteaders. We'll talk about this in a little bit. And uh, so I really felt this thread of Merton uh, guiding me in, in a sense. And um, and I had some interesting life in that at that on that land. Um, but I have tremendous gratitude for for that part of my life, certainly in retrospect.
0: Five years you were there. Five years. What did you do?
1: So um, on this land, there was a uh, log cabin that had been handmade. You could still see the ax marks, probably in the 1870s. Um, And we refurbished that. And um, the rural electric co-op did bring electricity about a mile into the land. Uh, we tried to dig a well, but it was a failure because in cave country, you just got into a quicksand and, and then nothing, a nothingness. Um, and and I, so I went back to uh, Oberlin for my senior year and my friends, Denny and Guay, uh, stayed. Um, but after one winter there, they moved into town and then soon he went to graduate school at Harvard and, and they abandoned that life. And so uh, after I graduated, I came uh, back to that land um, and lived in that log cabin for five years. Um, I, I cooked and heated with wood. I even canned uh, vegetables and fruits with a, a wood stove. Um, and I devoted my, I was inspired by Merton and meditative traditions. I was i was doing yoga, uh, but I was doing yoga without a teacher, uh, just with books, which was, I see, was a mistake. Um, And um, I made my life there. Now, uh, my closest neighbors were about a mile and a half away. Um, A lot of the time I didn't have a car, even a beat up old truck. Um, Only in the last year, um, with my parents' insistence that I get a phone uh, line put in there. And um, and it wasn't that I was 100% isolated, but there would be weeks at a time I wouldn't speak to anybody. Now, there were other people from my Oberlin College uh, group of people back to the lands and then friends of friends. So at a certain point before I left uh, five years uh, into it in 1977, um, there were about 40 or 50. They called us Hart County hippies, um, the locals. But what's interesting, this is rural Kentucky. There was never hostility. We were welcome. And part of the reason we were welcome is we would do the work that the farmer's kids wouldn't do with harvesting hay and harvesting tobacco and cleaning up fence rows and doing, you know, hard manual labor, which I was never prepared to do. Um, But that's a whole nother story. But I learned. Um, But I think the crowning thing of what happened to me in those years was the the U.S. Department of Agriculture had a, a program for farmer, uh, landowners to improve their forest timber stand improvement. It was called, it was a federal program where, um, a forestry agent came out in just the way you prune in a garden or in a, where you, where you pull out too many plants. If you plant too many lettuces together, none of them are going to grow. Well, the same thing in a forest. So he marked the, some of the smaller trees that he felt were crowding out the growth of a, of a dominant tree. And then uh, my work, especially in the cold months, was to go out, you know, hike out into the woods with a chainsaw and clear the forest. And it was, um, it was me, it was wonderful work. Um, A big mistake I made is I didn't wear hearing blocks. And so Mm -hmm. it's caused me uh, hearing problems at this time in my life. Um, But at the time, I just loved the sound of the chainsaw and, and, uh, and then to see what happened to the forest as the years, years went by, because even though I left in 77 to study acupuncture in Boston, I would visit regularly. My parents were in Cincinnati. I would go visit them and always go down to Kentucky, and uh, I really could see the work. Now what's interesting um, is to work in the forest, or I planted fruit trees too, you really have to change your perception of time because gratification doesn't happen in a year, it doesn't happen in five years. It happens over a longer sequence of time. And um, as far as perception and acculturation go, how we view time is one of the biggest uh, cultural determinants of of how we shape reality. And so working in the forest and being around trees um, and counting the rings within a tree um, really changes perception of time. It, It was very meaningful work and, um, I was poor as a church mouse at that time, and I was able to make a, a few a few dollars uh, to help. I think my best year there, I brought in maybe fourteen hundred dollars, um, but I lived on nothing, and um, it, it somehow it all worked out.
0: Did you have any unusual experiences being that close to nature?
1: Absolutely, um, I, I I felt connected. But I also felt um, at the mercy of the verities of, of weather, um, and it, was, it took me back to some of my religious studies uh, to see how much climate and environment uh, shape consciousness, too. One thing happened, which uh, only in retrospect is, and, I, and it's just very, co- not coincidental, uh, just subjective, like, let's say. The experience wasn't subjective, but the linkage I'm going to make is totally subjective. One day I was sitting on the front porch during a mammoth thunder shower, lightning, thunder, torrential trent- rain, and um, even though when the old cabin was wired, um, it w- it was grounded. It was done professionally. It was grounded, but I was sitting on the front porch watching the um, storm and the, listening to the lightning and the thunder. Watching the lightning, listening to the thunder, getting my senses confused, and it's at one moment there was a, a, a simultaneous thunderclap out of the corner of my eye I saw a f- bright flash and I was sitting about six feet from an electric outlet on the front porch and out of that outlet a jolt of energy came and took my body and shook me up like a gin and tonic and uh, and then let me down I didn't lose consciousness or anything like that but I and I wasn't technically hit by lightning, but I was hit. Um, I mean, I, I did have a, a radio and a stereo in the, in the cabin. They were blown up. The refrigerator was blown, you know, they weren't on fire, but they never worked again. And, uh, and I was all alone. I, there was no one to report it to. This is the most public I've ever been about this experience. Um, but it was in that same cabin that, um, I guess about a year and a half later that I woke up one day from a dream and all I wanted to do was study acupuncture. And I and had it
0: just came overnight, just
1: out of the like a lightning bolt, Sandy. It was like a lightning bolt. I had no, no, now looking back, I could see I wanted to be a doctor. I was totally enamored with Taoist and spiritual thought of the East and Buddhist thought. You know, I could see how those threads uh, came together ultimately. Um, mm. But uh, the reason I woke up that day and one, and I don't remember the dream. But I had a challenge, a thing of perception of time. There were no schools of acupuncture in Chinese medicine in America. This is 1975. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no internet. I mean, I had no clue about what am I going to do with this interest? Uh, The idea of going to Asia was, it wasn't even a dream. I couldn't even imagine it. Um, if If I got off the farm, it was a big trip for me In some ways at that time. Um, what happened then in, in the winter of 77, the 76-77, uh, my parents decided to move from the, the house they raised my brothers and myself into a much smaller single level house. And they asked if I would come up and help move uh, some of their more delicate things and I had a friend with a pickup truck from, he had actually lived in Kentucky for a while and then moved back to Cincinnati. Cincinnati. And so, you know, I, I, certainly I've, I've come. I was, you know, it was in the winter; it was I could have a warm bath and uh, have food cooked for me. So I went up, and um, we stopped at what was the only um, vegetarian restaurant at the, in the at the time in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was near the campus of the university there, and we're, we were waiting for our undercooked soy burger to arrive. Soy burgers were pretty hard to eat and digest in those days. But I was a vegetarian at that point, point. and the uh, Michio Kushi's East West. Uh, foundation, the Macrobiotic Foundation, had a tabloid newspaper at that time about food and culture, Asian culture. And while we're waiting for our soy burgers, I'm just leafing through the uh, paper. And all of a sudden, I see an ad announcing America's first state-approved school of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And boom, the light bulbs went off. And I, I knew the next step of my destiny was right there in front of me. So um, I went back and uh, I wrote a letter uh, we didn't call I didn't have a phone still and uh, started corresponding with the school and um, and then within a few within that fall I was I was in Boston that was a transition. Um, I actually flew to Boston and uh, talking about a person being out of out of sorts or not being acclimated, I was lost um, but from the first moment I started studying Chinese medicine, I was at home. It just made sense to me. And um, it just it transformed my life. And it's it's given me my, my life and my career. Uh, I'm 40 plus years into practicing and still practicing and still loving it, still being fascinated. It's, it, people are endlessly fascinating. And that's, you know, I do clinical work. I'm not teaching as much as I used to, um, but that's that story
0: <laughs> so a question about that experience on the porch there um did you notice afterwards any changes in you sensory system physical in any way not that i can recall not that i could
1: really recall um again i was i was in it i was doing yoga a few hours a day and meditating and i would get up in the middle of the night and read and uh um, but I don't really remember anything in particular. I did hurt my back quite badly, but I think that was before then. Um, but, but nothing, nothing that would be really that I could really say connected. Maybe that's oh, why I started going to, bald.
0: <laughs> we're going to move on to um, the book. I'll say book that's number seven on your list, um, which is the one that's a little, sounds a little bit out of left field, um, but of obviously following on from your time in Kentucky, it maybe isn't quite so surprising after all. And that is the whole earth catalog. As yes. um, the first time we've had a non-book <laughs> um, publication on the book list. So tell us what it was that made you put this one on your
1: list. Well, actually, there is a, a, a story that goes through the whole Earth catalog, a sequential story. So it is, it's, it's. Um, I put that on there because um, this was a uh, literally a guidebook for uh, potential back to the Earth homesteading, college educated, totally unschooled, and in, in living in the woods or, or gardening book. It was a review of sort of every. Um, like tool and idea and structure of the Fuller Buck, or Fuller Geodesic Dome, I was introduced to through there, um, tools. Uh, I, I ground all my wheat and corn with a little hand grinder I found in there. Um, it, was a, it was an amazing reference. But in addition, this was at the, the first time that pictures were taken, not, not so much in the catalog, but the cover of it, of Earth from off Earth. And you saw this magnificent orb in interstellar space that that was our home. And so even though it was a a highly practical and certainly not literary per se, um, it was spiritual for me because it it is a whole earth. Uh, I'm part of it. I wanna live on that earth. I wanna live softly on that earth. I want to protect that earth. And this is where the first ideas of environmentalism really were embedded in me. Um, connectivity, uh, practicality. Um, one thing I had learned uh, in my academic and personal studies about uh, spiritual, especially from the Zen point of view, is um, that famous phrase, before enlightenment, uh, chop wood, carry water, after enlightenment. Now, I'm not saying I'm enlightened by any mean, but I chopped wood and I carried water. And I literally carried water and I chopped wood to heat and cook. And I, I still feel that in the practical day-to-day aspect of life is the opportunity for awareness, connectivity, and, and spiritual development. And the Whole Earth Catalog, um, again, in the, in, the, in the cohort that I was part of, we would just look at it together. We'd go, we would. It was a, a sharing, you know. We'd look at a product and we go, "Wow, that's so interesting." It's sort of like Yelp reviews and Google, um, you know, all all at once. Yeah. Um, and, um, it was just just so practical and so important. and and again, this was a very personal process for me. I wasn't trying to sell books or you know, get interest in books. And uh, I just felt that it was a, it was it was a crucial part of the, like the spiritual part for me of grounding. You know, usually we think of the energy of spirituality as upward. But for me, a lot of that spiritual energy is is rootedness and groundedness. And the Whole Earth catalog really, was a bible of of that for me in many ways um another part it wasn't there was a a company called rodale press uh, that Mm -hmm. had the the encyclopedia of gardening i mean you know i bought seeds and i didn't know (laughs) what to do i mean i i was a, a, a a babe in the woods i mean i really i didn't take a course in gardening and uh and so it really it was practical and grounding and uh and have very 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 helpful.
0: Mm. Yeah, I can understand that. So number eight, the web that has no weaver. Understanding mm-hmm. Chinese medicine, Ted Kapchuk. Yeah. Has that appeared on anybody else's list that you no, it has not. Yeah.
1: Well, again, no. this comes back to my my practicality. Um, the background of this is, um, and this is a major book in in, in uh, Chinese medicine. It's not a major textbook or anything at this point, but when this book appeared, it created a uh, a, a literature that you could share with uh, parents, we could share with patients, with lay people, anyone who had any interest, because it's so highly readable, and um, it. it, it was academic, especially before so much literature was av- available now. I mean, when I started acupuncture school in 1977, there was a couple of books by Englishmen. There was a Felix Mann had a book and J.R. Worsley had a book. Um, but there was my teacher, uh, doctor Tinyao So, the headmaster, who was it was his authority that allowed the school to become state approved. Um, he was a noted teacher in, in Asia. Who was brought brought to America? He had a handbook that he had written that was just for his students, and that was our that was our learning, diagnosis, treatment, theory, um, and the really practical point uh, point usages. And um, so uh, so we're in class that fall of 1977, and there's all of a sudden buzz around the school. An American, Ted Kapchuk, had come back from I think four years in Asia. Um, studying Chinese medicine more more at the root in a in a more traditional uh, way than Dr. So had a family tradition. Ted Captra presented more what was being taught in China at that time, and uh, and he was going to become te- he was going to be teaching his first class ever at the New England School that fall, and it was it was an extra fee, but it was you know certainly modest, um, and so I signed up for it. Little did I know I was going to have an inspirational teacher and a man who's become a lifelong friend. Um, And this book, again, it's it's where something that seems from an outside maybe to be esoteric or highly technical, he makes it so enjoyable and so readable. And then as a teacher, it became such a good resource for me to teach from and to share with students. And I had that that direct bond to, to Ted. Uh, one thing about this book, and there's a second edition now, if you're an academic or a researcher or a, and a skeptic, there are so many footnotes that uh, bring in research studies and other other things that that co- correlate to the basic work of the of the writing. Um, Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, herbs, it's a very effective medical modality. Um, just like with my spirituality, I'm not going to throw away where I came from. So I, I embrace science and as we'll talk about biology belief later, science is a miracle. Um, and it, the, the way it rationally helps us understand the, so many mysteries is, is you know, to, to be alive during so much of this is just extraordinary and to see what's happened throughout Western culture uh, too. But Chinese medicine is very effective it, and it's what people say, well, does it cure cancer? Well, no. Um, but it'll help us stay well. Now, it definitely will help relieve and and cure cure some things or help eliminate symptoms of many things and regulate the body or lower blood pressure, help with sleep, facilitate digestion, help with fertility. I mean, the impact of it, I don't want to minimize it all, but the, the integrative medicine we see happening now is just so valuable because uh, Western, we say in Chinese medicine, it's a yin yang thing that there's the pathogenic factor and the anti-pathogenic factor. Western medicine has taken the, the pathogenic factor, the disease agents and striven to understand them as well as they can. And then in some way, eliminate them, destroy them, modify them, genetically modify them. You know, East Asian medicine, has always focused primarily on the anti pathogenic factor, how we stay well. And it does a very, very good job of that. And it continues to do a very good job of that. Um, And it has tremendous benefit for society if if, if more people would embrace the teachings. And it's not just that, it's interesting. I'm a licensed acupuncturist. I've been so for many years. I'm I'm so grateful that I am. But that's just, it's, it's the name of a technique you know, if anything, I'd be, I'd prefer to be a, a a doctor of traditional East Asian medicine, for instance, because I, especially my own work embraces more than than just Chinese. Mm, yeah. But, you know, we don't call a surgeon a scalpel wheeler or a dentist a tooth driller. We don't identify their professional status by a technique, but acupuncture became the uh, it has pizzazz you know, we put needles in the body and there's no blood and people feel better, you know, so so we're called licensed acupunctures. And interestingly enough, acupuncture from int- within the culture of Chinese medicine, they said medicine, it's not a standalone therapy. They always talked about therapy, which is a, a thermal or a heating technique. So if anything, I'd be a licensed therapist if they wanted to be technical, but I'm grateful to be this um but it's a much broader uh broader medicine and it's it's not just a medicine it's a way of living it's a it's following the Tao basically Mm.
0: so book number nine is I would hazard a guess and say it's the one that appears most often on people's lists and that is the power of now Um, a guide to spiritual enlightenment
1: yeah Uh,
0: Eckhart Tolle,
1: he really uh, synthesized and brought to a very manageable and and easily digestible and embraced and embodied understanding that um, our mind is a magnificent gift, but it's also a double edged sword. And we're always worrying about the future and ruminating about the past and the only place we really are is is in the now. And um, and I just think he explained it beautifully under, you know, and just succinctly and presented it in a non-threatening way. He didn't make it wrong for having monkey minds, but he recognized that that was what it was. Uh, something I wrote in, in my essay here was I felt for myself and maybe people in my generation that there was a bridge between Ram Dass's landmark book, Be Here Now, and The Power of Now, because when Ramdas's book, Be Here Now, came out, it set off a... Fire of awareness, um, and um, and I think that the, and so, but that was much more of a, his personal journey. Um, and coincidentally, I got to meet Ramdas and massage his feet one day um, in Boston, and in, in the when I was in school there, and he was uh, so articulate, so funny, so clever. Uh, his he had a huge aura. I remember when I took his feet in my hands, I, I felt like a, light, a little lightning bolt happened. It was a powerful moment. Um, and so I felt that bridge. And so, and so, so to, to be here now, you had to understand the power of now. And so I felt so grateful that uh, Eckhart Tolle had written this book. It became very popular. People who had never thought about um, observing their own mind started to observe their own mind. And um, and I, I just am grateful for that because I think that the more we become aware of how we're projecting our our own stuff out into the world, the less we're going to do that. And the more we can just see that everybody's here trying to get by, trying to struggle, trying to, hopefully trying to do good. Um, And that only comes, I believe, if we can quiet our own mind. The only way to access our intuition, except for in dreams, is to shut up. And I found that very helpful in my healing work. Uh, uh, I'm somewhat known as an intuitive healer, um, and I think it all just comes. A bit, I get quiet, especially because we do traditional pulse taking. I do traditional pulse taking, and when I, whenever I take someone's pulse, they might be ta 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 ta, and I reach for their pulse, whoop, because they want me to connect. Yeah. And uh, and when I do that connect, and I feel the pulse, something will come to me, and I, I I've learned to not frame it of like. do you have a problem with your liver? I'll say, are you having any kind of anger issues or digestive issues? Are you in, you know, and so that ability to be in the moment uh, serves me well, and I think can serve everybody quite well.
0: Absolutely. Well, we have about 10 minutes left, and I really do want to uh, leave a little bit of time to talk about meta-mindfulness music. Um, So our 10th book is the biology of relief, <laughs> Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter and Miracles by Bruce Lipton. I don't know many people who haven't read this book, but I mean, it was a game changer for me when I first read it. And tell us how it impacted you.
1: Um, this was a place I felt where I was reading a, a Western scientist, uh, uh, an extraordinary Western scientist who writes beautifully, who changed he, he changed my operating system because what we find out that is our genetic code is not determinant. that our, you know every cell has uh, except for our red blood cells that don't have DNA, our cells have all the same DNA, but they express so differently. So And then he shows that it's actually the cell wall. And the little filaments on the cell wall, and this comes back to our music discussion in a way, it will, that are, that are receiving information. So the cell wall is actually the cell brain. It's the brain. And it's what mediates between the cell and the cellular environment so that the genes can express. And if that, if that inter, intercellular environment becomes toxic, then that cell wall is going to introduce toxicity in, into the into the. DNA and the DNA is going to start to express in an aberrant way, and when that becomes an aberrant expression, that's that's the root of cancer. And so this really opened up this whole realm of a scientific recognition of how much um, power influence we can actually have on consciousness and and our physical health. And uh, like you were saying, it's a it's a game changer because now we have responsibility. And um, and even before I read that book and in, in my studies, one of my study trips in Asia, I had a, a Japanese sensei uh, who I studied his shiatsu form with, which is one of the books I've written. And he was all about the lymph system. And the more explored the lymph system, that's our sewage system of our body. It's also our, where our immunity happens. And so keeping the lymph system moving and fluid and, and as clean as possible is what will allow the, uh, the biology of belief to manifest in a, in a healthy way. Uh, Lipton goes on to talk about how much our thoughts help shape that. And we've seen research that shows the power of thoughts um, and projecting of thought. So um, it was just uh, a just a wonderful book and I, I watched some of his videos um, and lectures um, and uh am continually inspired by his work. Uh, may he live long. Um, he's not a young man anymore. Um Another small synergy coincidence is he's good friend. He spends half the year in New Zealand, and my best friend, the naturopathic doctor, has become one of Bruce's best friends in New Zealand, so he's always relaying messages and telling me what Bruce is up to, and, and it's good to feel that like sort of the personal connection to someone who's been quite influential and, uh, and hopefully can continue to be.
0: Amazingly so. Amazingly. Okay, so... That's the 10 books. I I do want to talk about meta-mindfulness music. You met Yuval Ron uh, when you were both teaching at SLN. Long story short, you created a company together and you are now using, um, you know, ancient wisdom, um, bringing together all your knowledge of uh, Eastern medicine um, and creating the most amazing pieces of healing music so just tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah well I had begun to use um, a sound to facilitate my own meditative practice before I met Yaval. we met in 2011 for about 10 years before that I had been using especially by binaural beats um, which is a whole other story to facilitate my meditation I had felt stuck um, and uh, I don't have a guru and um that just what it is and I, my heart is open and my mind is open to that so I been I was using sound and it and it was very helpful but if you listen to binaural beats a, enough it becomes tedious especially the way it's been done a lot it's either just t- like a tapping beat um, that's aud- it's auditorily a you're aware of it um, or it's underneath synthesized music and, um, and it, be- it had become a, a somewhat of a nuisance to me and then Thankfully, coincidentally, spiritually, synergistically, um, teaching it, I was teaching traditional Thai medical massage, which is a a meditative style of therapeutic body healing work, which is, came out of the Buddhist monasteries, it was, that's another story I'd love to share sometime with you. And Yuval was there teaching a course with a a noted neuroscientist, Mark Waldman, he's published in the field, a a class on sound and neuroscience. And um, Yuval and I met and without any predetermined thought or any plan or anything, um, I casually said to him, is it possible to bring a high, so let me go back. He's a Hollywood composer. This Esalen gig was a secondary thing for, it was an avocation, not a vocation. Uh, I said, is it possible to bring a high level of musicality um, to meditative music? Uh, and he said, yeah, 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 why, why not? Um, uh, but he had no you know, he didn't have a producer, he didn't have someone behind him, uh, funding the projects and giving him ideas. And so um, we formed a, a partnership, which we call Metta, which comes from Buddha it means loving kindness and mindfulness. And uh, we actually when we started, we thought it might be just a one off because I was busy with what I do. He was busy with what he, what he does. Um, our first project was to use the six healing sounds of Qigong from the Chinese medicine. Um, and, and part of our mission from when we discussed things in the beginning was to use ancient wisdom traditions with modern neuroscience with a high level of, acu- of musicality. And we wanted acoustic musicians because the vibratory uh, effect on the whole body of acoustic musicians is much different. Even though synthesized music sounds the same, if you look at it on an oscilloscope, it's a different, a different vibrational field. And it turns out in Chinese medicine, first of all, the character for medicine in the Chinese language, it combines the, uh, two characters, uh, one for music and one for herbs. So music is deeply embedded in Chinese medicine. Our oldest text, the Yellow Emperor's Classic, from about 236 BC, has references where each of the five elements is is, is given one of the tonics. It's it, it uh, to com- so we composed based on that. So we did this album. We l- we layer it. We have, uh, uh, have subliminal affirmations. We have droning, and and then the f- main theme is playing, and uh, it's 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 deep and it's rich and it's effective, and people loved it, and so we thought. You know, I was, I was game for more and Yuval, you know, he's very busy, but he, he thought we'd go for it. Then we looked at the uh, doshas of Ayurvedic. Um, a lot of people had done music based on the chakras, but we didn't see any uh, dosha music at that time. So um, we com- he composed, um, our, our work is to, meant to evoke and harmonize the three doshas of Ayurvedic. Um, we we uh, recorded a sitar player in, in India and Mumbai. This is where technology comes in, where people can just go to a high-level studio in their home city. And then Yuval runs this session from, through Skype. And, uh, and, and we have a Bansuri flute player. He's Indian, but, but, but he, he was in LA. And um, Jay chants the Om. It turns out you can chant Om in certain ways to invoke, invoke the, the doshas. And so that, that came up. Now, that one got a Grammy nomination. Yeah. And then, and so we just keep going. So once we opened that door, um, we, we did the four divine states of mind from Buddhism. That we did in mantra form, um, which is another f- way of using sound for meditation, the, the repetition, repetition of mantra. And we did go back and do a, a chakra pro- uh, project because we met a, a meditation yogi, a psychic teacher from England who lived in L.A. who wanted to do that and didn't have anyone to help produce it and actually create the whole project, which was the music and then she wrote original. And so um, we're continuing, so currently in the lab, we have a project based on the tree of life and the Kabbalah from the Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we have more which I'm happy to share with you in the future, but- uh, and
0: You and I have done many interviews now on um, what is going on, where we actually play some of the music. And get a chance to hear it now. I think on the website, um, people can sample the music, can't they? samples,
1: and, and we're on YouTube and Spotify. Yeah. So if you yeah. if you don't find this under Meta Mindfulness Music, uh, search under the name Yuval Y U V A L Ron R O N. Uh, we have a huge presence on Insight Timer, which is a marvelous uh, meditation app, yeah. and there we've we've created programs, ten day programs that they they want on their site. And one of our programs has over 7,000 10 day people that have done it. Well, I don't know if they've all done 10 days, but we get tremendous exposure. And and I'm the as the producer, I get the feedback um, about our music. And it puts smiles on my face. Um, mm-hmm. It is so heartwarming that our music is Im- not just impacting people, but people all over the world. I mean, I get em- messages from Uzbekistan and Saudi Arabia and South America and Russia. And it's just...
0: Well, it's the universal language, isn't it?
1: Music is the universal language. Yeah. And as you know, Yuval is extraordinarily talented and he has access and, and people love to work with him, high-level musicians. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, one of your authors, uh, Deva Primal, is one of our singers. Yes. And, uh, she's marvelous.
0: She is indeed. Well, we're out of time now, Richard. We're on a tight schedule tonight, unfortunately, because I'd love to talk longer. Meta mindfulness music, that's two T's um dot com do go and check it out just before we close what are you reading now i'm
1: reading more stuff about the brain i'm reading a book called buddha's brain uh by i forget it's jim hansen i think is his name um and then stuff about, from india about the uh, sound healing but i'm also reading a, a korean novel uh, Panchamama. um it's interesting obviously in translation so um the other thing i read a lot is the new yorker magazine The writing in there is so extraordinary and how they put it out every week, I don't know. And I love uh, the variety of articles, things I never even thought about. Um, But you'll find me reading every day.
0: Richard Gold, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you and hear about your 10 best list.
1: Thank you so much, Sandy. I really appreciate it. You be well.
0: Yeah, take care, Richard. Thank you at home for joining us and for more information about the no bs spiritual book club go over to sedgebeer.com or just type in the no bs spiritual book club.com and you'll find us Uh, we'll be back again at the same time next week with another edition of face to face with and i'll see you then